If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned earlier, we're in the middle of a series on our vision and our values as a church. And last week we did an entire sermon on our vision as a church. And this week we're doing a sermon on our first core value, which is sound doctrine. And when I explain our core values to people, there's usually one core value that comes with more questions than the other ones. So most people, when I talk about us being a church that wants to practice gospel culture, they want to know what I mean by that. They want me to explain it a little bit more. When I tell them that we're a church that wants to be multi-ethnic, that's also curious to people. But when I tell them that we want to be a church that practices sound doctrine, that is usually met with no questions and no objections. If there is a question, it's usually like, well, why do you need to have that as a core value? Obviously, all churches want to celebrate sound doctrine, right? Right? It seems like something that should be just assumed. But it is not a safe assumption that you can make that churches will practice sound doctrine. Instead, I think that the assumption that has happened in many churches is that you cannot say anything controversial or confrontational if you want to reach people. You just need to say the very least amount of things so that no one will be offended because we want to reach as many people as possible. And what has happened with church after church is that they become spiritually anemic and their teaching just becomes fluffier and fluffier until there's nothing of substance left there. Or, at very worst, it becomes compromising. We need this value of sound doctrine more than ever because we don't think that we do need it. That being said, there are also, on the, so there's like a whole group of churches that don't have this as a core value. They, they assume it. It's not safe to assume, but then there's a whole group of churches that have great doctrine. They're perfectly fine, but then in the way that 
they behave in their culture, they do not portray their sound doctrine. And so that's why we have both sound doctrine and gospel culture as core values of who we are. All right, so let's just dive into this idea of sound doctrine. I, I wanna look at three different points. First, why is sound doctrine so important? Secondly, what do we mean when we say sound doctrine? And third, what does this all, all this matter to you, okay? So first, why is it so important? Second, what do we mean when we say sound doctrine? And third, why does this all matter to you? First, why is sound doctrine important? I have a fun little project for us today. Uh, I want us to, to think about our Bibles, to maybe think about our New Testaments, the part of the Bible that we oftentimes read the most, and I want us to just to have a little thought exercise, a little experiment here. Let's just go through the New Testament and remove every part of the New Testament that is an encouragement toward sound doctrine. You can just say goodbye to Romans, goodbye to Philippians, goodbye to Galatians, goodbye Ephesians. None of it is going to make. It's gonna be like, hello, my name is Paul. Goodbye, say hello to everybody. There's not gonna be much left after you cut out the parts that are telling you to commit yourself to sound doctrine. In particular, there's one book of the Bible that is almost exclusively about guarding the doctrine of a church, and it's 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, we have a book written by Paul, who at this point is getting up there. He's, he's advanced in age. He's an older man, and he's writing to a younger pastor named Timothy. So the book is not by Timothy. The book is by Paul, and he's writing to someone he's trained to be a pastor, Timothy, and he's encouraging Timothy. If you wanna summarize all of the Timothys, both Timothys, in one little summary sentence, it is this. Guard the doctrine. You're a pastor, do your job. Guard the doctrine. He says it over and over and over again in many different ways throughout both of the books. He basically says, hey, you've been entrusted with something sacred. You've been entrusted with the words of truth. Guard it and pass it on to others. He summarizes it well in 1 Timothy chapter six when he says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I've never heard a more relevant verse for our day and age, have you? It seems like people are swayed more easily than ever before. It seems like the more knowledge we have is not the more smart that people get, it's the more easily they're swayed from the good knowledge, from the true knowledge. I want us to look at, and this is gonna be the verse that we're camping out for the majority of the time, 1 Timothy 4, 16. If you have your Bibles, you open there and just keep your finger right there. We're going to jump around in 1 Timothy 4 a little bit, but this is the main verse. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the only verse in the entire Bible that promises that you will save people if you keep it. This is the only verse in the entire Bible that tells us exactly what we must do in order to save people. And it's this, keep a close watch on yourself, on your life, and on the doctrine. 
then you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I realize that we're at church this morning. Most of us don't think the doctrine is unimportant. It's not like you think the doctrine is unimportant. We just don't think that we need to spend much time thinking about it. But Paul told Timothy to not just keep a watch on the doctrine. He said, keep a close watch. Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. It's not something that we can just kind of get when we're younger in the faith and then leave on autopilot. He's telling Timothy, the pastor of the church, keep a close watch on your doctrine and on your life. If that's true for Timothy, if it's true for me, it must be true for all of us. We have to keep such a close watch on our doctrine because bad doctrine destroys churches. Right now, the deconstruction movement is going hard. It's almost every day that there's a new, a new podcast about anything, but there's certainly a new podcast about deconstruction almost every day. Well, you almost, if we did a show of hands, which we are not, almost everyone in here would know someone who has deconstructed from the faith. But I would dare to assert that if these people were brought up in churches that did a better job of watching their doctrine, many of those deconstruction stories, some would still happen. Many of those churches, they are perpetrating abuse over and over again. But many of those churches and many of those people who are deconstructing would not feel the need to deconstruct if the pastors and the members of their church did a better job keeping a close watch on their life and on their doctrine. We live in a day and age where we let the doctrine of the devil slip into our churches. And it's deceptive, it's sneaky, and there's documentaries made about it. We have the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We have the secrets of Hillsong that are being published and made public to everyone. And here's the thing about false doctrine, is it's sneaky. It is sneaky. False doctrine doesn't just come into the church and say, hello, I am not the truth. It doesn't come into the church and say, deny Jesus. It comes into the church and says, there's a better Jesus. There's a little bit of Jesus that you haven't heard about. Or there's this plus Jesus. You can do this and Jesus. Letting bad doctrine into the church is like letting contamination into the lab. And all the scientists shudder because they know that that's the worst thing that could happen. I have a friend who um, brews beer for a living. It's a, kind of a cool job. He works for a large uh, brewery here in Boston. And I was asking him one day, what is the most important part of the brewing process? And um, he said, cleaning. Cleaning? Like more important than, like I can go start a brewery if I'm just really good at cleaning and it's like, eh, you know, that gets get you a long way. Cleaning, more important than recipe. More important than ingredients, it's cleaning, and here's why. If you don't properly have a clean tank to put your beverage into, the whole thing will be ruined. You can use poor ingredients, and it'll just taste a little off, but if you have just the wrong ingredients snuck in there, it throws off everything. Bad doctrine loves to sneak in to churches. It's like a mutating virus trying to stay alive. It's always finding a new way to 
slip through the defenses that we put up. And so we have to keep a close watch on our life and doctrine. There's all kinds of doctrine that try to, sleep, that try to sneak into the church. And many of the doctrinal battles that we fight today are the same doctrinal battles that they were fighting 500 years ago that they were fighting 1,000 years ago, that they were fighting 1,500 years ago. Let me introduce you to a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was around in the 300s, and Pelagius became a very famous pastor, a megachurch pastor in a sense, a celebrity pastor in a sense. His message went very far and wide, and here's what Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that the main thing wrong with you is that you do bad things, and that if you would just stop doing bad things and start doing good things, that God would be more pleased with you. Now that sounds almost like Christianity. It sounds almost like what many of us grew up hearing in our churches. But even in that day, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic and Augustine came along and said, Pelagius, that guy's wrong. It's the main thing with you is not that you merely do bad things. The main thing with you is that you love the wrong things. That you were created to love and to know God. And when you love things more than you love God, when you love anything more than you love God, that is what causes you to do the wrong things. So it's not simply that you do bad things. Just like Jesus didn't just come to save you so that you would do more good things, Jesus came to save you because he wants a relationship with you. Do you see how sneaky this doctrine is? And for the past 1,500 plus years, it has been finding new suits, new pieces of clothing to walk into churches and to convince people that it is the real gospel and that the gospel of Jesus is the false one. It keeps on finding ways to get behind the immune system that we have built as a church to sneak in, to infiltrate, and to destroy. And oh, does it destroy this moralism. It destroys. The world says it doesn't matter what you believe. It do, the world says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your heart. The message of Jesus says the complete opposite. That all that matters is that you're believing in the right God, that you're trusting in him, no matter how weak your faith is, it's him who does the saving. That it's not the, uh, the strength of your faith that matters, but the object. So sound doctrine, my friends, it is important but what do we mean when we say sound doctrine? What do we mean when we say sound doctrine? 500 years ago, if you wanted to grow in your understanding of God, what did you do? You had to go to church. And if you were lucky enough to be literate, to be like the 15% of people in the world that were literate at that point, you may have owned a Bible, but you probably were not rich enough to own a Bible. The printing press was very new. Bibles were very expensive. There were no $1 giveaway Bibles. And so you just had to go to church to learn everything that you knew. We have a huge leg up. We have a huge leg up in that regard. But at the same time, the world has just changed so much. You can get online and you can just type onto your magical screen like any topic that you want to know more information about and what's gonna happen? You're just gonna have infinite amounts of information, more than you could ever ask for or bargain for. Just 
presented to you. Now, is that information true? Not always, obviously. You're going to have anybody's opinion, and you're going to be able to find an opinion that already agrees with yours. And then guess which one you're going to pick? The one that already agrees with you. You see, people, the way that we try to find sound doctrine, the way that we define what sound doctrine is today is oftentimes through an a la carte approach. We want a la carte Jesus. We want, I want a little bit of this, I want a little bit of that, I'm just gonna order the parts of Jesus that I already agree with, and then I'm gonna line it up and say, that's my Jesus. But friends, Jesus doesn't come a la carte. He comes with a prefixed menu. Prefix menu, it's called the whole word of the Lord that he's revealed it to us, that he has given us this. When we come to God looking for an a la carte Jesus, what we do is we make God into our image when the Bible says that we're made in the image of God. And so we have to go to him to hear what he is like. And, and here's one reason why that's super important. It's really important that you come to who God actually is, which is why we need our doctrine to be sound. Because unless you do that, you cannot have a God who loves you. If you make God in your own image, that is not a truly loving God. There was a movie like 20 years ago with Nicole Kidman in it called The Stepford Wives. Does anybody remember this movie? Maybe a couple folks, okay? Uh, I never saw the movie, I just know the premise of it. and it, it goes kind of like this. There were men in the suburbs somewhere decided that they got tired of their wives disagreeing with them, and so they made robot wives that would agree with everything. And so it'd be like, hey, go make me dinner. Yes, husband, I will make you dinner now. And just would go along with everything. Here's the problem with that. That's not a real loving relationship. That's not a relationship at all. A relationship with someone, a real loving relationship, is when you have someone who can disagree with you and you can work through those issues together and you can hear them and you can value what they say and who they believe they are and and what they want and their values and it allows you to sacrifice your own good for them. Real loving relationship, real person. And many times we come to God and we want a step for God. We want one that will just agree with us on whatever we think about the day and age and that won't really push back, but that is not a loving God. False doctrine is sneaky and likes to sneak in there and it takes true things and it just twists it a little. As we know, that's what Satan does. He just takes true things and he twists it just a little. False doctrine starts with right doctrine, always, It doesn't just come in there with something crazy. It starts with right doctrine, and it does one of two things. The first thing that it might do is it takes a right doctrine and it twists it, like the story about Pelagius and Augustine, or like the prosperity gospel. It is true that God wants you to be happy. That is true. He wants you to find happiness and joy in him. Does that mean you will be rich? No, never, that is not Jesus. That is an antichrist. Does that mean that your life will be wealthy and prosperous? No, look at the Jesus that we worship. He went to a cross. Does it mean that you might lose your life for the sake of Jesus? Yes. Does it mean you'll be happy? Yes. But do you see how the prosperity gospel, it says if God wants me to be happy, that must mean that I have money. That is an anti-Christian message. It's taking a true thing and it's twisting it. 
Or the second thing that we have false doctrine doing oftentimes is taking a peripheral issue and moving it to the center. And there's all kinds of churches that do that. And one reason why we have to keep sound doctrine as a core value of our church is so that we won't do this. But we have all seen churches that do this. We have churches that are politics churches that take political issues and every week they're gonna preach on another political issue and try to inform where you vote as if the President of the United States is the true savior of the world. Or you have churches that are social justice churches and they take this good implication of the gospel, politics, good implication of the message of Jesus, good implication of the message of Jesus of social justice, but then they make social justice the main thing. And when we make something other than Jesus the main thing, we lose the main thing and it becomes antichrist. We have to keep the main thing the main thing and not have peripheral issues take over as the main thing. So how do we define sound doctrine at our church? I have a graphic for you. I very rarely use slides. I do have one this week. I believe we have it. We're getting it. There we go. All right. Uh, this is lifted straight from our membership class. And uh, we have three concentric circles. And the, and the largest concentric circle is conscience issues. And then beyond that are issues of commitment. And then beyond that are the core values and the core beliefs of the church. And so I'm just gonna walk through these three things, the core in the middle, the commitment, a little bit wider than that, I'll explain what I mean by that, and then the conscious issues that go beyond that. And as I go through these three core values, I suspect that you might have questions, hence we've brought back the Q&A. So I welcome the questions, we'd be more than happy to talk about all these things afterwards, we're gonna, in 10 minutes, we'll get a bagel, 10 minutes, meet right back here for Q&A. Uh, after the service. So core beliefs. Core, our core beliefs are things that are essential for salvation and for orthodoxy. We want the door to the local church to be as close to the door to the universal church as we can make it. And so we say these are the things that you must believe in order to be a member here. And it is the historic understanding of who Jesus is. It is the Apostles' Creed that we read earlier. It is our statement of faith. It, we believe that the Bible is fully inspired and authoritative from God. And this is how we define what sound doctrine is, ultimately, is how clearly is that described in the Bible. There's a spectrum of different things, and that's why we have the concentric circles, because some things are super clear in the Bible, gospel issues, and there are some things that aren't as clear, and these are conscious issues. But for example, of a, an issue that we think is a core issue is what is the gospel? And we believe in a thing called penal substitutionary atonement which means that Jesus received the penalty for our sin as our substitute to atone for our sins. You cannot be a member of our church here and deny penal substitutionary atonement. You can be a member of our church here and not know what penal substitutionary atonement is, as many of us do, but you cannot deny penal substitutionary atonement as a member of our church. It is core to who we are. Um, the next layer out are our commitment issues. Now these are our theological distinctives that will faithfully teach us and that, will, that we will faithfully teach you. 
all the leaders of our church hold these in clear conscience. And when we preach, these are the things that we'll be preaching and this is what will be advocated for from our church. You can be a member of our church and disagree with any of these things as long as you have a thoughtful alternative way to think about it. Or you can just not know what you think about it. That's all, ignorance is always a, an option in these things, as long as you love Jesus, all right? Um, so there's theological distinctives that we hold. We have five theological distinctives as a church. And the first is, God, I'm just gonna walk through them quickly. Gospel centrality. The gospel is the heart of everything we do as a church. It is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. It is everything. Second, missional living. We believe that each and every one of us is called to live on mission for Jesus and that God has sent us to reach the world with the good news of Jesus. Third, we are spirit-filled people, meaning that we are led, dependent, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are still distributed and manifested today. Like I said, you don't have to agree with everything in here. Um, there are some people at our church who are suspicious of the miraculous gifts, but it, we are going to teach you the miraculous gifts are still present and distributed to the church today. We believe in, fourth, something called the doctrines of grace. And this means that we believe that God is sovereign over everything, including our own salvations. That he is sovereign over everything, including our own salvation. That he initiates the relationship with us, that we were lost in our sin, and that he came down and rescued us. That he made us alive with Christ. And fifth, we believe that God made men and women equal in, va in value, dignity, and worth, but uniquely created in his own image. Men and women are mutually dependent upon one another, and an effective gospel ministry cannot happen in a local church without both men and women flourishing in that local church. But practically, we believe that God has given us instruction in his scripture that men and women are crafted uniquely. And so at our church, one of the ways that this plays out is that men serve as elders because that's what the scripture teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter two. And that women can serve as, men, as uh, de deacons and men can serve as deacons either. So men and women can serve as deacons and men serve as elders in our church. Churches rarely get this doctrine correct. I think that it's, it's a hard it's a hard issue to get the needle just right to go through because either churches will become authoritarian where they say like men do everything, they have all the voice and the only leadership in the church and they, they will suppress the voices of women, they won't listen to women or they say, you know, men and women virtually the same thing, we're just gonna let them serve in whatever ways, exactly the same and they're not, usually, not really created uniquely to serve God. And so what we wanna do is not to fall into either ditch, but it's really hard. And so some of the things that we've done, we've, we're like, in, we intentionally had to fight against the abuses of this doctrine because it has been so traditionally abused over the past couple hundred years that we need to make sure that it is not continued to be abused. So we invite our deacons into our elder meetings at least twice a year so that we can have a bigger picture of what is happening in the church and so that we can lead with women voices in the church. And we really want to empower women to serve in the local church and to be leaders of, of the local church. And so we try to thread the needle very carefully there, but we're always growing in this area 
at the same time. And so the best way to, to handle this issue and all of these issues is not to look at the way the culture does it or the way other churches do it, but really is to return to Scripture over and over again and say, what, let Scripture be our guide on this topic. And so that's what we're trying to do humbly. The third concentric ring on this is conscience. And so these are wisdom issues that we don't think should divide our church or our leadership. And so there are things like the actual practice of the charismatic gifts or views on the end time. I personally am a pan-millennialist, just thinking it's all gonna pan out in the end. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I, I have a position on that, as many things. Uh, I have an opinion on many things. Um, <laughs> Or even the age of the earth, you can be, uh, have different views of the age of the earth. We just finished a series on Genesis, so you guys know that I'm an old earth supporter. Um, but you could hold a different view uh, here, and that's totally open to your conscience. Each person can, can, as long as it's right in their own conscience, says, okay. I will oftentimes preach a position on issues of conscience, um, but you could be an elder of the church and disagree with me on many of those things. And when I preach something on conscience, I will often say, this, this is thus saith the Fletcher and not thus saith the Lord, okay? That is like my favorite little dad joke. And so I'll just slip it in there every once in a while, just so you know, hey, this is my opinion. This isn't necessarily something that we hold with conviction. So with all that, we want to be a church that holds tightly to the Bible, that heralds theological clarity, but that does it all in humility. We want to hold tightly to the Bible, herald theological clarity, but we want to do it all in humility. And I think that that's super important to emphasize. So let's, let's round the corner here. I know that some of you are thinking this question, what, what does this all matter to me? What does this all matter to you? With each of these core values, what I hope to communicate isn't that this is your church's leadership's core values, but what I hope to communicate is that we as a church, these are our core values. They are your core values. They are ways that you are growing. And if, if I, um, they're, they're not simply the church's values, but they're all of our values. And we want you to grow in each of these values. You might not care about in fact, I would dare to, to say that each one of us has a bent toward one of the core values more than the other. Some of us care more about multi-ethnicity or care more about having a gospel culture or care more about having sound doctrine in the church than others. But we all need to bend together to grow in each of these. And so with each of these, I'm going to give you next steps. I'm gonna give you ways that it matters for you. And so how can you grow and the value of sound doctrine. And here's, here's the thing. Growing as a Christian in general, growing as a Christian is done with the head, with the heart, and with the will. You cannot grow in just one of those ways. You have to grow with it all. Look at verse seven, chapter, 1 Timothy chapter four, verse seven have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. When he says train yourself for godliness, what does he put that in opposition to? When you think about training for godliness, what do you think about godliness? Maybe the fruit of the spirit, being kind, patient, persevering. 
But he puts training for godliness in opposition to having things to do with silly or irreverent myths. And so what he's saying is that one of the ways you train for godliness is with your mind. It matters what you think about. And that, this is why. That which has your attention has your heart. And the things that have your heart has your actions. And so if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you have to look at the things of God. You have to allow yourself to behold who God is. You have to go back to him over and over again. Start looking to God. For a lot of us, we need to take a look at our lives. It's almost like you're, you're having a doctor check-in. Okay, a couple years ago, I went to the doctor. And, you know, I, you, you meet with the nurse first, and, and they weigh you, and they measure your height, and take your blood pressure, and then the doctor comes in to kind of explain everything that's happening. So a couple years ago, I went to the doctor. And... Um, this has never been an issue in my life, but I guess I'm starting to get older, and the doctor comes in and he has a few sheets of paper in his hands, and he says, Fletcher, uh, you're overweight. And I was, I was just like, what? Overweight? He's like, yeah, you, you need to lose like five or 10 pounds, my friend. And I was horrified. I had never thought about that. I went home, I remember just kind of playing it cool at that moment, and I went home and I sat on the couch and my head I had hard work in front of me. I knew that I needed to lose weight. I got the prognosis. And so today is like a checkup for, for us in this. It's like, look at your spiritual life. And I just want to imagine that the doctor has checked out all the statistics of your spiritual life, and he comes in with the, with the papers, what's he gonna say? Is he gonna say, hey, look, you're a little spiritually anemic. We need to get some iron going. Hey, look, you're, you're just completely malnourished. Hey, you, you're full, you're, you're just bloated, but on the wrong things. You're not eating a good diet. What's he gonna say to you? Who is it that you are becoming? The little decisions that we make each and every day, and that's the thing about losing weight, is you have to make decisions every day if you wanna lose weight. And they're like hard decisions. It's like, oh, I guess I'll have the apple and not the apple fritter, okay? It's like, you have to make difficult decisions each and every day, but they shape who you become. The shape of your soul is dependent upon these things. And God is saying to you, look at the results. Where are you? Verse eight. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So just like you have to train your body to have physical fitness, you have to train yourself. And you can't just wait until the hard times come, okay? If you're training for a race, you can't just wait until the race and then go run the race or try to, to squish it all in in the last week before the race comes. 
No, you have to be living that life of training. And friends, let me ask you this. If you go to the gym one day a week, are you going to get stronger? The answer for some of us is uh, probably because to go to the gym one day a week is better than going to the gym zero days a week. And so you are going to get stronger for many of us, but you will plateau. Oh, you're not gonna get that much stronger. You, know? you can only do so much with one day a week. You can only do so much in one hour a week. You have to go to the gym regularly if you want to add strength, and you have to watch the diet and everything. Why do we think that going to church one day a week is enough spiritual training for us oftentimes? Let me ask you this. Have you plateaued in your spiritual life? Maybe it's not that God is distant. Maybe it's that you're still eating the same diet that you were when you were a teenager, and that it's time to like increase your calories a little bit. And, you know, when, when you were a baby, I would speak to you like a baby, but now I see you as grown people. And so we need to think about our intake and who we are becoming. Paul tells us that we're not supposed to plateau. He puts it really clearly, and he, he's pretty firm here, okay? So I'm trying to let my language match Paul's. Verse 10, he says, For to this end we toil and strive, <laughs> because we have our hope set on the living God. Toil and strive. Many of us drift and float along in our spiritual lives. But Paul says we toil and we strive because we have our, our hope set on nothing less than God. We want to know him. We want to enjoy him. Godliness requires energy. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So he says practice, and he doesn't just say practice, though. It's one thing to practice, and another thing, and we all know this is true about education, that the best learning is done in immersion. We all know that that's true. There's a Spanish-language immersion school here in Somerville. I guarantee you the kids in the Spanish immersion school are going to speak better Spanish than if you went to Spanish class one day a week. Guarantee you, because they're immersed in it. If you want to progress spiritually, you have to immerse yourself into the things of God. If you want to progress spiritually, you have to immerse yourself in the things of God. Dive into the word. Dive into good books. I have a whole list of books. If you go on our website, go to resources, it says sermons, and it says books. Click on the books, I have a whole list of books. I will give you any of the books. On, if you are here today, and you want any of those books, write me an email, I will send it to your house, okay? I will give you any of the books on that page. I just want you to immerse yourself in who God is. Dive into community, into relationships, into discipleship. Dive into podcasts, sermons. There's so many resources today, and I'd be happy to help you with any of those. Dabblers drift from the truth. But those who follow Jesus are fully immersed in the family of God and in the things of God. So let me just end with this. Who are you becoming? There's this quote in The Little Prince, and hopefully this will give us better motivation here in some ways. 
Um, but the, the, the classic book, The Little Prince, it says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And so the last thing I would want for you all is to walk out of here just feeling guilty that you're not doing enough and that you need to do more and your checklist is longer. Our church is full of doers. But here's what I want you to see is that God seeks to know you, that he is still speaking, that he is delightful, that he is kind, that he wants to be near to you, and I want you to experience that. And so therefore, I'm telling you that if you want to be near to that God, you must immerse yourself in the things of God. If you want to know God, then you keep a careful watch of your life and your doctrine. If you want comfort and security or power or wealth, then you won't care one way or another. You'll only live for this life and you'll only receive your reward in this life. But if you seek God and his kingdom, you receive the kingdom to come and you'll get this one thrown in with it. Each week we're invited to a communion table and it's an opportunity for us to repent. It's an opportunity for us to say, hey, I've been putting my eyes on the wrong things. I want to look at God so that I can strive after him and toil to know him. And so when I come to this communion table, you're being invited to feast on the things of God. You're being invited to be satisfied by what God has to offer. Again. So church, let's stand as we prepare to respond to the word. To sing his praises. God, as we come to your table, we pray that you would satisfy us with rich food. As we go to you day in and day out, we pray that as we immerse our things of God that are delightful and pleasing, which give life to our souls. And Father, we pray that our church would be full of people that just want to know you better. And they want to understand who you are better. God, would you reveal yourself to us as we read your word? Would the words come alive off the pages and help it to apply to our own lives? And God, we pray that we will grow in this value as we hope that we will grow in all of these values. And we ask that you would be with us today. And as we respond to you now, we pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would receive the good news of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.